discussions of an arcade addict podcast, an introspective look at video gaming from the classic era to the modern day. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 45 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay, uh, not much has gone on since I recorded episode 44, like four or five days ago. Um, just been playing Nova Drift and Battletech because I finally got that working correctly. And also uh, Streets of Rage 4, mixed in with a little new world here and there. Uh, aside from that, not too much else going on. Uh, just working and, you know, taking care of my son and, you know, all the regular normal life things um once again no emails or anything like that so once again if you guys out there who are listening have any questions thoughts is there an arcade game that you uh really are fond of that you would like me to cover and have my opinions on it just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com also there is a phone number for voicemails that number is 734-743-2433 also i am on facebook instagram twitter and tumblr on facebook just make a search for confessions of an arcade addict it'll take you right to the page there is a discussion group that goes along with it on uh, instagram my uh screen name is at arcade addict brian all one word on uh Twitter, my handle is arcadeaddict underscore b, and Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict. Once again, multiple ways of getting hold of the show. If you're so inclined, please do so. I want to hear from you guys, so, you know, if you got any questions, let it fly. Okay, uh, let's get right to this. Um, I am in the middle of trying to get episodes 44 through 46 out in the coming weeks so that I can get the Chicago trip underway. I'm working on episode 47 right now. I've got that about two-thirds finished. Once I get done with that, it's on to 48 and on and so on and so forth. It's a five-part uh, episode arc starting with um, how I came about wanting to go to Chicago and then, you know, it culminates with and on the road segment when I actually left Chicago heading back to Michigan. So that's pretty much the arc and there will be plenty of information and opinions and reviews and rundowns and all that fun stuff that you've come to know and like about my show. So hang in there. It's coming. All right. So let's get right down to it. Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown, the news corner, Bridgeport, Connecticut. <laughs> One of my favorite places. Um... When I was a kid, I used to go downtown a lot. Like I've told you, I am born and raised Bridgeport, Connecticut from the time I was born until I left when I was 23. Um, whether it was with my mother or my older brother or when I was older by myself, um, we used to go downtown all the time. 
Uh, downtown Bridgeport in the 70s and 80s was not quite what it once was in the 50s and 60s from what I've seen in photographs, but there was still quite a bit to catch my eye when I was younger. Uh, the McDonald's downtown was a staple of my childhood, and from what I've seen in Google Maps, it's still there today. Uh, I remember Periello's Restaurant. It was a great Italian place right on Main Street that my mother went to all the time because she was friends with the daughter of the owner, so she used to take us there all the time to eat. And uh, we, when we went down there shopping, yeah, we usually went to Periello's. My mom always had the well, the veal parmesan, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, let's see, of course there was the mall, Lafayette Plaza, which had a Gimbel's department store on the north end and a Sears department store on the south end. Uh, Reed's department store had a multi-floor standalone building uh, a block away from that, and that was also run by an old-school uh, operator running an old-school elevator. You know, the ones where... Basically, before he starts the elevator, you know, he shuts the gate closed to make sure that, you know, nobody loses a hand when the elevator changes floors, things like that. Um, that was pretty cool. Um, you had the uh, public library, the local AM radio station, WICC, uh, the Mosque roller skating rink, which was about half mile west of downtown along State Street. You had the Midway, which would come to Seaside Park every summer, the train and bus stations, you know, just a lot of places for a young kid to explore and check out. And believe you me, I did exactly that. But in my eyes, the one place that stood apart from all of them was the news corner. Uh, it was a small newsstand on the corner of Main and John Streets, and as most dedicated newsstands did in the day, they had all the newspapers from the greater New York City area, you know, like the New York Times, the Daily News, the New York Post, uh, the New Yorker Magazine, the Hartford Current, and of course the local uh, papers, the Bridgeport Post and the Bridgeport Telegram. Um, they had tons of magazines ranging from the mundane to the risque, uh, candy, soda, books of varying kinds. And I think somewhere around 1982, somewhere between there, 1982 to 1984, somewhere in there, they had a video rental storefront for a few years. And, you know, one of the major things I loved about it was they had a top-notch comic book selection. Um, but setting all that aside, they had video games. Um, they only had a small area for them, and they never had a lot of machines. I think the most they had was like seven machines in the place, and like four or five pinball machines, something like that. But, you know, they constantly rotated games in and out. Uh, a game would probably stay, on average, like maybe two or three months before it was exchanged for another one. Unless it was making a lot of money, then they would keep it for like six months. Uh, in a couple of cases, I think maybe uh, one or two machines oh, they kept for close to a year because they were constantly getting quarters from people. Um, I think the owners were looking for whatever brought them the most money. You know, big surprise there. Uh, so I believe that was the reason why they shuffled games in and out so much, but that was okay with me. Uh, there were the usual suspects, Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Pac-Man Plus, Galaga, Defender, and the like, but every so often, 
maybe once a year they would get something that perhaps one other place in the area would have, like Spanky's or Milford Rec. Um, and that's what really set that place apart from just your average uh, bodega or mom-and-pop store that had a couple of machines in it. Um, I have more to say in my on-the-road segment, so stay tuned for that. And that's Arcade Rundown for the News Corner. Uh, if you grew up in the Bridgeport area like I did, and you knew about the uh, News Corner, and you know you have thoughts about it, hey, let me know about it, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. All right, then, let's get right on to Are You Experienced? I'm too old for this. Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, but I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cushion. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Wizard of War. <laughs> I've loved this game since it came out. You know, it's just one of those classic games. It's hard, at times unforgiving, but when you have it going correctly it's so satisfying you know it's just one of those classic games i mean valley midway had a lot going on for themselves starting in 1980 and it just kept going from there so all right let's get right on to the wikipedia page okay wizard of war is an arcade game released in 1980 by midway up to two players fight together in a series of monster infested mazes clearing each maze by shooting the creatures the game was ported to the Atari 8-bit family Commodore 64, Atari 2600, and Atari 5200, and renamed to The Incredible Wizard by the, for the Bally Astrocade. The original cartridge came with a cash prize offered to the first person to complete the game. I didn't know you could complete it. I just thought it went on and on and on until you lost all your lives. <laughs> well, how about that? I didn't know that. Okay, uh, let's move right on to the gameplay. Um, the player's characters, called Warriors, spelled W-O-R-R-I-O-R-S, um, must kill all the monsters by shooting them. Player 1 has yellow warriors on the right, and player 2 has blue warriors on the left. In a two-player game, the players are also able to shoot each other's warriors, earning bonus points and causing the other player to lose a life. Team-oriented players can successfully advance through the game by standing back-to-back, -back, such as in a corner, and firing at anything that comes at them. Each dungeon consists of a single-screen rectangular grid with walls and corridors in various formations. The warriors and the monsters can travel freely through the corridors. Each dungeon has doors at the left and right edges, which connect with each other, making dungeon wrap around. Uh, whenever a door is traversed by a player or a monster, both doors deactivate for a short period, making them impassable. A player who exits a door can pop back through the door immediately when the warlock or wizard is in the dungeon. A small radar display indicates the position of all active monsters. As long as the player has at least one life in deserve, reserve, I should say, uh, a backup warrior is displayed in a small sealed cubby hole at the corresponding bottom corner of the dungeon. 
When the warrior is killed, the cubby hole opens and the player has 10 seconds to move the backup into play before automatically being forced in. The various monsters include the Burwar, a blue wolf type creature, the Garwar, a yellow Tyrannosaurus Rex type creature, the Thorwar, a red scorpion like creature, a Warlock, an insectoid type creature, and the Wizard of War, a blue wizard. Both Garwars and Thorwars have the ability to turn invisible at times, but will always appear on the radar. All enemies except the Warlock can shoot at the Warriors. Each dungeon is filled with six Burwars. In the first dungeon, killing last Burwar will make a Garwar appear. In the second, the last two Burwars are replaced by Garwars when killed, and so on. From the sixth dungeon on, a Garwar will replace a Burwar when killed. On every screen, killing a Garwar causes a Thorwar to appear. There will never be more than six enemies on the screen at once. From the, dungeons, the second dungeon on, after the last Thorwar is killed, a Warlock will appear and try to escape through one of the side doors. The level ends when the Warlock either escapes or is killed. In the latter case, all point values for the next dungeon are doubled. The Wizard of War will appear in or after the second dungeon once the Warlock has either escaped or been killed. After a few seconds, the war wizard will appear, disappear and teleport across the dungeon, gradually approaching a warrior. The wizard remains in the dungeon until he shoots a warrior or is killed. He uses a speech synthesizer to taunt the players throughout the game, which is one of the best <laughs> features of the game, but I'll get into that a little later. <clears throat> to continue... Players are referred to as warriors during the first seven levels, then warlords beyond that point. The warlord dungeons are more difficult than the earlier levels because they have fewer interior walls. Ain't that the truth? Uh, there are two special dungeons with increased difficulty. Level 4 is the arena, which with a large open area in its center, and level 13 is the pit, with no interior walls at all. A bonus warrior is awarded before each of these levels. Every sixth dungeon after level 13 is another pit. A player who survives any pit without losing a life earns the title of Warlord Supreme. Each dungeon begins with a dramatic rendition of the five-note opening from Danger Ahead, the theme to the radio and television show series Dragnet, <laughs> with the fifth note only playing on the double-score dungeon screen. Uh, let's see. The Reception Wizard of War was moderately successful in arcades. Electronic games called the Atari 8-bit version outstanding. It similarly plays the arcade version, stating that while one person and competitive two-person play was excellent, two people cooperating was, quote, a unique playing experience, end quote. Danny Gunman of Creative Computing Video and Arcade Games called the Incredible Wizard for the Astrocade, quote, an incredibly good replica, end quote, of Wizard of War. Video magazines... 1982 Guide to Electronic Games agreed, calling it, quote, a near-perfect translation, end quote, of the arcade original. It would go on to be awarded Best Multiplayer Video Game at the 4th Annual Arcade Awards, where it was described as, quote, the finest cartridge ever produced for the Astrocade, end quote. And the Atari version would be honored at the 5th Arcades with a Certificate of Merit in the same category. And the Legacy is real quick. Uh, Wizard of War is included in the compilations Midway Arcade Treasures 2, which was released in 2004, and Midway Arcade Origins, which was released in 2012. Okay, my experiences with it. 
uh, the, I think the first time I saw this game was again at the James E. Strait shows when they came to my neighborhood every summer. I think it was the summer of 80. It might have been 81. I can't remember. Um, I would find out in 1982 that Spanky's had it, and they kept it on the floor for a very long time, I think right up until they shut down in 1989. Uh, in all my arcade ramblings through the following years, I would not see a Wizard of War machine again until or actually the game itself until I discovered the joys of emulation in uh, t the early 2000s, and I wouldn't see an actual machine until I started going to the arcade in Brighton. Uh, I think they put that on the floor in 2016, and uh, the machine is still there to this day. Um, of course, I love the game because, like its part counterpart, Gorf, because the, all the, the junk the wizard would be talking at you while you played it. Um, the funny part was that I set my all-time high score on the game in either 2017 or 2018. Um, this is another classic by Bally Midway for sure. Um, yeah, it's a great, one of the all-time greats, even though it, it didn't have as much success as, like, say, a Pac-Man or a Donkey Kong. You know, you know comparable machines of the day, which were leaders in arcade uh, popularity and revenue. Okay, so that's uh, our experience for it. Let's pivot, let's pivot right immediately into time for some strategy. starts out easily enough but it can get really difficult after the fourth maze if I rem if I remember correctly the difficulty curve is fairly steep and that's for sure um, one of the things I would like to do in the first couple of levels is to actively hunt the Burr Wars, Gar Wars, and Thor Wars because they don't shoot at you at first and they move relatively slowly I think this changes by level three and then you need to find a spot where you can cover two directions at the same time and use the radar to find out if anything is coming at you in order to blast it. Um, from level two onward, the warlock will come out after you dispatch, dispatch the last monster. So the best thing to do is to post up by the warp tunnel and see which direction the warlock goes. Then either wait until he comes for the tunnel you're in front of or the tunnel he's heading for and blast him. Be ready, because the Wizard of War himself might come out right after that, teleporting to random er areas and blasting shots from his wand. The best way to get him is to find a spot that affords a long shot down a hallway and hope that he teleports into the shot's path. Um, otherwise, it's more or less luck to hit him, although he's worth 2,500 points and 5,000 if in a double-score dungeon. This is why killing the Warlock is so important, because in the following dungeon, all scores are doubled. Um, let's see, quick uh, scoring breakdown. Uh, the Burr Wars, 100 points. Gar Wars, 200. Thor Wars, 500. Um, if you shoot uh, your uh, companion war warrior, it's 1,000 points. Uh, the Warlock is 1,000 as well, and like I said, it doubles the score for the next dungeon. The Wizard of War, like I just said, is 2,500 points. 5,000 in a double uh, score dungeon. 
um, in Tom Hirschfeld's How to Beat the Video Games, he listed diagrams of all the dungeons, and apparently there are several so-called safe spots in certain dungeons where the monsters can only come at you from one direction. That makes killing them easier because all you need to do is sit there in the areas and face in that direction and button mash the fire button for all your worth as the monsters will eventually come at you from that direction. Um, as I've said when I talk about this book, there's an electronic copy of it on archive.org. Um, I also found an interesting um, fact for uh, Wizard of War on gamefacts.com, so I'll post both links in the show notes. All in all, Wizard of War is a great game. Bally Midway was only starting their run of classic games when this and its counterpart Gorf came out in 1980. It was kind of a rare machine to find, but some arcades and barcades do have it, and it is worth looking for. And that's just the truth. Okay, I will post those two links in the show notes when this episode goes live, so stay tuned for that. Um, until then, any questions, thoughts, comments, you know what to do. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Alright, let's move on to the silver ball. Once again, to my disappointment, I wasn't able to find out a lot of information about the machine and how it plays. Um, I have an idea of how the gameplay goes, but it uh, it's a little rough in my head right now, so I'm not going to embarrass myself by putting out in incorrect information. <laughs> um, I do remember the person responsible for all the sound effects for the machine. Her name is Suzanne Ciani. Um, she was on my second favorite uh, science TV show when I was a kid, 321 Contact, and she would show how she would make the sound effects. Um, then I think maybe later that year or maybe the next year, she would be on David Letterman doing the exact same thing. Um, she's gone on to become, as someone in the YouTube comments on one of her videos said, quote, the Grand Countess of the Modular Art Form, end quote. Um, you should check out her music, it's really great. Um, as I was typing out this article, I was listening to uh, some of her music. Uh, she had a video on uh, YouTube where she was in Europe somewhere, I think Amsterdam, but I can't remember exactly. And she was making music and building it layer by layer. Um, the only other person I've ever seen do that was Robert Fripp uh, when I was at a... Uh, G3 concert back in like the early 2000s um, yeah she would just start with a basic thing and then she would just add these different layers I mean <laughs> the setup she had in front of her uh, was like it was like two laptops and like this um, like old school uh, sound effect creator and she would just add these things in and add them in and add them in until she was finished and 
you know, then you had a fully uh, formed musical piece, you know, coming from it. It was awesome. But, okay, getting back to the machine. Uh, the first time I think I saw Xenon, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the Bolarama Game Room, believe it or not. Um, even as an 11-year-old boy, I could see how sexual the game was with the seductive voicings and how, the fast and frenetic action of the table. Um, I do actually have this table in emulation, although it wasn't programmed correctly. Um, the music would increase in tempo as you hit targets, and the tube shot would get stressful with the music blasting you at blasting at you at such a, such a frenetic pace. I mean, it's a great, great uh, uh, machine. Um, I loved it for a multitude of reasons. I mean, you know, the gameplay, the sound effects, you know, the way it the way as you kept hitting targets and increasing your score and then you know making the tube shot. Um, you know, the it, the pace would just increase, increase, and your heart rate would go up. You would start messing up shots and so forth. Um, this was my favorite pinball machine until Bride of Pinbot came out in 1991, though after the video game crash and the subsequent closures of multiple arcades in the late 80s, it became really hard to find. Um, the last time I actually second to last time I actually found a Xenon machine was when I spent uh, time in uh, uh, Stamford, Connecticut, and I was staying at my aunt's and uncle's place, um, and there was a mall maybe about, oh goodness, I want to say half a mile away from her, their apartment building, so I was always there hanging out, you know, checking places out and so forth and so on. Um, but they didn't have an arcade, and I think across the street and maybe another quarter of a mile down the street from the uh, from the apartment building was a hotel. I think it was a Sheridan, if I'm not mistaken. And, of course, when I checked out hotels, of course I wanted to see if the hotel had a game room. And sure enough, this hotel did. I can't remember what floor is on. I think it was like the seventh floor or something like that. I can't remember. But... You know, I would go up there, you know, I'd bum dollar bills off my aunt and uncle, and I'd go over there and, you know, play Xenon and the couple other video game machines and pinball machines they had. You know, you know, just memories, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I tried to find a Xenon machine when I went to Chicago, but no one had it. Um, you know, I mean, I would have put my money on Galloping Ghost to have it, but they did not. It was unfortunate. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, that's Xenon. I mean, I wish I had more information about the scoring and about, you know, more about its actual origins. But, like I said, when it comes to these old uh, pinball machines, unless it's like one of the absolute classics, you know, there isn't a lot of information to be had, unfortunately. Unless, of course, I'm looking in the wrong place. Um, if anybody has any sort of idea. I mean, I know there are a bunch of pinheads out there uh, who listen to this show. Um, if there's a website out there that has, like, you know, breakdowns of, like, all the old-school electronic, uh, electromagnetic machines, uh, please get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or get a hold of me on Facebook or uh, Instagram or Twitter or Tumblr. I'll find it eventually. And, you know, let me know if there's a place that I can, you know, 
uh, take some information from because I still got at least another what six or seven machines that I want to cover before I put uh, the silver ball to bed <laughs> so yeah if you know let me know please okay um with all that being said let's go on to the final uh segment of the show which is of course on the road so once again get in sit down strap in shut up hang on here and this is a on the road slash arcade rundown for the news corner i just realized while i was listening to um vic sage's latest episode where he's starting to talk about wizard of war i realized that there are a couple of places that deserve an arcade rundown that uh I just have been ignoring, and I really shouldn't, for all of the gushing I've been doing about the news corner, you know, I really should just give it a rundown, and when I really thought about it, that place was as important in some ways as far as video gaming went, then it just as important as, uh any other place that I've gone to, you know, in my childhood and in my teenage years and into my 20s. So, uh, most of this is being drawn from memory. If I can get a little more information on, you know, any internet sources about the news corner, I will certainly uh, append it to this segment. So, here we go. Uh, the News Corner, I don't know when it originally came to be. I think it was sometime in like the 50s, I want to say. At least the 1960s, at the very least. Um, it was on the corner of Main Street and John Street in downtown Bridgeport. Um, it was a... The location of its the location just by itself was important because um, most of the bus lines that uh, went through downtown Bridgeport on their way to points north, east, and west, you couldn't go any further south because uh, you would only go down to Seaside Park and then that would be it. Because if you went any further south, you'd be in Long Island Sound, of course. Um, but most of the bus routes would stop either on the east side of the intersection, you know, crossing over Main Street, um, the west side, or I'm sorry, the west side of the intersection, uh, crossing over Main Street, heading west, and a lot of bus routes 
um, either were coming from Seaside Park or were coming from Lafayette Plaza and heading north, you know, towards whatever destinations were going that way. Um, of course, the Main Street line, which was the more or less lifeline for me going to places like uh, when I used to go to private school in Milford, Connecticut, you know, I would get off at Main and John Street and just walk a couple of blocks east to the train station where I would probably get engrossed in a game of Galaga and then have to may have a foot race to the uh, eastbound platform to head to Milford to go to school. <laughs> yeah, I can only think about how many times I've done that. Um, I'm trying to remember when the News Corner started getting video games in their, in, in their store. Um, of course, News Corner is a major newsstand. You, you know, it could get um, newspapers, magazines. Uh, they had an entire shelf for comic books, which they rotated out regularly. Um, back in my comic collecting heyday, I would get... Oh my goodness, I think I was collecting close to 12, 12 to 15 titles. <laughs> that was back when, of course, comic books were much more affordable. They were, when I first started, they were 35 cents an issue. And then uh, they increased to 50 cents, then 60 cents, then 75 cents, then a dollar, then a dollar 25. I think I stopped collecting right when they were $1.50 an, an, uh, an issue. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, yeah, I remember, the. just as an aside, the tipping point for me for comic books not only was the price, but also I was a Marvel comic fan. You know, DC was okay, but they just did not hold a candle to Marvel. They just didn't. Even though DC had, you know, Superman, Batman, the Justice League of America, Teen Titans, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, they had a ton of different uh, titles, but Marvel was it for me. I mean, I'm trying to remember. Um, all the titles I used to collect were like, let's see, if we're going all the way back... Uh, Star Wars, uh, after the movie adaptation came out in 1977, they got the license from Lucasfilm to actually continue the uh, comic book series, and they did. Um, they could, they did that from 1980, no, excuse me, 1977, all the way up to I want to say 1984. Either 85 or 86, somewhere in there, when they finally discontinued the, the comic book run. But the reason I bring that up, let's see. It was Star Wars, it was Battlestar Galactica, the Avengers, the West Coast Avengers, the X-Men, the New Mutants. Um, oh, goodness, I'm forgetting a couple. I actually started getting into collecting Thor. Um, I'm missing a few. Oh, Power Pack. That was a fantastic uh, comic book series. 
Um, let's see. Uh, the Micronauts I collected. Uh, Secret Wars when it came out. Uh, the official the comic book guide to the Marvel Universe, which went through almost every single Marvel character. Um, their origins, their powers, their, you know, their, you know, their current history, you know, where they were in, you know, the far, as far as the Marvel Universe went, and it went through pretty much everybody. I think it was like, oh, what, 15 issues to, to get through all of the characters, all of the major characters and, and most of the minor ones. I mean, they even had an uh, entry for Aunt May Parker, you know, Peter Parker's, you know, elderly aunt, you know, and so forth and so on. Um, that, of course, would translate over into the Marvel Super Heroes game, which came out in, what, 1983? No, no, it was 84? No, 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 it was later than that. I think it was like 80, 87 or 88, somewhere in there. I'd have to look it up. My memory's failing me, of course. But anyway, um, so yeah, the, uh, that's what that's what originally drew me to the news corner was being able to buy magazines and newspapers and comic books. And it was a place where if you were, like I've said before, if you were waiting for a bus to take you, um, northbound, like on, um, uh, bus route number eight, the main street line, which was the one I almost always used or the number 12, which would, you know, take you into my neighborhood on the back end along Chopsy Hill Road, or the number six, which was the Noble Avenue bus, which actually went into my neighborhood. And uh, when I was, like, running late, whether I was messing around after, you know, going to private school or going to uh, Spanky's or coming home from Spanky's, I could take the number 12 home. Uh, or the number six because those buses ran super late. Uh, the number eight bus only ran till like nine o'clock during the week. And let's see, I think it ran until like six o'clock on Saturday and like four o'clock on Sunday. Um, the number 12 and the number six, they would run till like 11 o'clock during the week. I think like eight o'clock on Saturday and like, uh, I think the I think the number twelve, I don't think the number six or the number twelve ran on Sundays. It was kind of weird. Um, yeah, the Bridgeport Transit system was a little strange, but then again, it was the 1980s. It wasn't quite what it is now. Uh, to continue, um, let's see. I'm trying to remember the year they first started getting video games in their store. They would basically they basically cleared out one of the shelves the shelving area, they cleared it out, cleaned it out, and they started putting video games in there. Uh, they started off slow. I want to say they started putting games in probably about 1981 or 82. Um, and they just kept going from there. Um, one, two machines became three, which became four. Um, they would have title, they would have Miss Pac-Man in there. You know, that was a staple. They had Ms. Pac-Man. They had Galaga for a little while. They had Robotron. They had Afterburner. Um, let's see. What else did they have? Oh, of course, they had Double Dribble. 
I talk about that when I did my uh, Are You Experienced and uh, strategy for uh, for that game. Um, and they had they would get games that were oh what should I say they had a couple of games that I never saw anywhere else, which was kind of funny, kind of weird in a way. But so they so like I said. This place had games rotating in and out all of the time. They had Defender, actually. I'm trying to remember if they had Stargate. I don't think they did. But, yeah, so they had tons of games in that place. I mean, they only had them, like, three, four at a time. They had Sinistar, now that I think about it. They had Dragon's Lair, because I relayed that story. You know, I, I think I, rele- I related that story, like... Oh God! What two or three times during over the course of this podcast at this point? So they had a lot of games. It's just that they would have a game for like I'd say probably like three months. Then they would just you know rotate. They would just take it out and put another game in. Um, and of course they expanded from there, which I will get back to because I'm at a stop. So um, give me a moment. I shall return. Okay, I'm back. So, uh, as the years went on, you know, going through the 80s, 82, 83, 84, 85, uh, 86, um, I won't say they got greedy, but uh, because it was such a, the location was, you know, in such a prime position, because you had literally hundreds of people if not i'd say close to a thousand people a day going through the area from you know the when the buses start at like six in the morning until most of them stopped at like you know nine ten o'clock eleven o'clock at night um you know so they got i won't say i won't say they got greedy but they started putting in more games actually at one point i think they had like six or seven arcade games and like four pinball machines in the place. Um, they would put the pinball machines uh, on the right, or excuse me, the left side of the newsstand as you walked in, um, where the paperback novels and you know the household novelties and you know the the cooler with the sodas and dairy products were. Um, They would put the pinball machines over there. They would keep the video games on the right side, um, you know, in the sort of like in the center aisle. Um, As you walked in the uh, news news, uh, corner, you would, you could either, you know, you would walk right past the counter Um, and then you would either go left, which is where, like I said, the paperback novels and stuff and the pinball machines were, or you would go right, which was where the magazines and the comic books and the video games were. Um, let's see, uh, trying to remember what year did that happen? I think it was like 1984. Uh, they actually got a, you know, they actually had like a video movie rental place in the back um i think they took over the adjoining store um there was a store that was like you know uh adjoining to them you know not next to them 
but if you were going down John Street, you know, it was next to, it was basically next door that way. Um, I think they took it over, knocked out the wall, and put in a video rental store. You know, you got to hand it to the people who own the place. They were, you know, trying to always drum up business, and they knew they had, you know, a little bit of a prime piece of real estate because you had so many people uh, going in and out of the place, especially during the winter. You know, uh, people would, you know, would come inside the news store, news corner, and just stay by the front window uh, because it was, you know, they had their heat on, so it was warm, so you didn't have to stand out in the cold, especially at night, you know, to catch the bus. Um, so they would do things like that. Um, like I said, they had so many games coming in and out of that place. It was, it was silly. It was ridiculous. Um, like I said, they keep a game for maybe about, I'd say probably, uh, depending on how much business it would generate, I think, depend, um, determined how long they kept it. Cause there were some games that were there for maybe like two or three months. Then there were those that would stay there for a couple of years. <laughs> um, and the games more or less depend, you know, because they would have, especially on Saturdays now that I think about it, you know, they'd have a bunch of kids coming through the place, you know, buying comic books, buying candy, buying sodas, uh, playing video games. Um, despite all that, you know, I would, if I was going to put it in an arcade review, um, I would probably give average marks for functionality because it was sort of like a hit and miss kind of thing. Um, if something was wrong with the game, uh, it would take them a little while to get it fixed. Um, but usually, you know, I think they did what they could to maintain the machines. I just think if something major went wrong, it would take a while. Or in some cases, they would just rotate the machine out of there. You know, they would just take it out, take it out of the art, you know, take it out of the news corner, never to be seen again. I, that did happen on a couple of occasions. Um, let's see, what else? Um, like I said, uh, when I was talking about um, Double Dribble in Are You Experienced, I was talking about my 100-point uh, game. Um, the news corner had a, no, they were notorious for taking their games and jacking the difficulty level all the way up. Um, on the one hand, it was frustrating because if it was a new game, like say like Rygar or Jackal or Cabal or something like that where you hadn't seen it before and you wanted to play it, um, it would be frustrating because the difficulty level would be so high that unless you had you know a, quite a little bit of natural talent at video games, you know, you would get killed off really quick. Um, their defender machine, the difficulty was jacked up to the max. You know, like I said, when I uh, was talking about double dribble, you know, I wanted to play a game of defender and I basically got like, what, 6,000 points, which is an embarrassment for me at that point. If we're talking 1986, you know, I'm what, um, what, 18, 17, 18 years old, and I can put up you know, 100,000 on Defender without too much effort. And to have that kind of thing happen, 
uh, really stuck in my craw, and yeah, yeah, and the rest was history. I already went into that story. Um, but at the same time, if you were there enough, um, if you're there enough and you just said, you know what, I know how this game operates, I'm just going to play it and see how, you know, see what I can do with it, you would get really good really quickly. Um, because, you know, you're basically dealing with a machine with maximized difficulty settings and, if you know how a game plays, you can kind of muddle your way through and get better. Um, the Ms. Pac-Man machine that they had, you know, that thing was in and out of the news corner at least five or six times throughout my years going to that place. Of course, when I got my job at CVS in 1987, um, I was having to take the Main Street bus out to downtown to Fairfield Avenue and take the number two out to where I, you know, where my job was and then come home that same way. Um, I had to make, you know, sort of make an arrangement with management saying, hey, I know you guys want me to stay until closing, but the last bus leaving from Fairfield was you know it's only it comes out at like you know it goes through at like what uh eight o'clock and then i have to catch a connecting bus to get home sorry about that folks uh i got a phone call and then i pull, was pulling up to the drive through to order lunch so i decided to take care of all of that and resume once i got back on the road so here we are um so yeah when i would come home from work at you know, from CVS at night, um, I would, you know, have to chill out at the news corner and wait for the last, uh, Main Street bus to come through, which would be, like, right around nine, about quarter of nine or so. Um, by the time I got to downtown Bridgeport, it would be 20 after eight, maybe. So, I would have a little bit of time to, you know, play a couple games at the news corner, which is what I usually did. Um, also, sometimes I would go to the news corner uh, and play games while I was going to get my hair cut. Because the place that I used for most of my life, the place I would go to for most of my childhood, going into my teen years, and until, you know, I just decided not to stop going there was Carter's Barbershop on the east end of Bridgeport on Stratford Avenue. Um, so when I was a kid, my brother and I used to go, and, you know, my brother, of course, would watch out for me, him being, you know, five years older than me, and it was still a little bit of a ordeal and ordeal to be grammatically correct it was still a little bit of an ordeal to go get my haircut when I was a little kid uh, but we would go to the news corner uh, and just hang out there for a little while before we went to the bus station to catch the Stratford Avenue bus to go out to the barbershop um, as I got older um, I started making the trip by myself because you know my mother could trust me 
to say, hey, here's uh, $10, go get your, go get your haircut, go get something to eat, and come back, you know, before dark, on, you know, this was usually on a Saturday, um, and I would go out there probably about, oh, I would say, what, one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, after all the cartoons and, you know, the, uh, professional wrestling would go off, go off the air, uh, on Saturday, then I would, you know, get dressed and head down there, and, um, so, I would go to the news corner, if we're talking like 1982, 1983, I'm like, what, 13, 14 years old, and I can make the trip by myself now, but the reason why it was an ordeal when I was a younger kid was because I had um, hypersensitivity when I was a kid, um... And I see it in my son. He inherited it from me, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, just like when it was a trial for me getting my hair cut back in the day, it's a trial for him to get his hair cut now. And he, you know, five years old. And, yeah, the Clippers really mess with his, uh, it overloads his senses. And he starts, you know, crying and squirming and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I went through the exact same thing. The problem was is that, um, yeah, I was, you know, hypersensitive, everything. I was like the princess in the pea. If something hurt, it would, it would hurt a lot more than it probably should, but that's the, the hypersensitivity. But anyway, I would make a trip of it and go to the news corner and play video games and, you know, maybe buy a couple comic books to read while I'm on the bus going out to Carter's Barbershop and then to read on the way home. Um, and then once I got done at Carter's Barbershop, I would go back to the news corner, play some more games before catching the Main Street bus to go home. And, you know, things like that. And as I got older, I'm trying to remember when I stopped going out to Carter's. I think I was like, oh goodness, I think before the la the very last time I went to Carter's Barbershop, it was, what, 2000? Um when I decided to go out there when I was visiting my mother and, um, you know, I wanted to get a haircut out there and, you know, just, to, and just to also see how the barbershop was doing and the barbershop was doing pretty much the exact same way it was when I was going there when I was a little kid, except, you know, um, the stylish changed a little bit, but anyway, um, the news corner was just, I want to say it was like just a small little bastion of gaming, especially once they really started getting machines in there. Like I said, I think the most games they ever had in that place was like eight video game machines and four pinball machines. And it was just, a, it was fun. I mean, you go and, you know, look at the magazines because they had pretty much almost every magazine you could think of. Um, they had, of course, they had a large comic book shelf and they would have Marvel, DC. I think they had Dark Horse at one point. You know, uh, they had, um, oh God, what's the name of the brand that um, McFarlane did that, was, that uh, he did with Spawn? 
oh well, I can't remember. But you know, all the almost all the comic books were there. Um, it was kind of cool to watch, you know, to just play the games. There's a game that they got in I want to say 1988, 87 or 88, somewhere in there, where I have never seen that game again. I mean, I've asked 20 million people about this game. It, I think it's a game imported from Japan, and I've never seen it again. I've asked people, you know, in the know, people who know their arcade games and so forth, so on, and nobody knows what I'm talking about. Oh, it's so frustrating. Um, because I would love to find that game again, at the very least find it in emulation and play it, because... It was just one of those games that just really um, stuck out to me in my memory. I mean, it's stuck in my memory bank. Um, and, you know, this place had so many games coming in and out. It was just ridiculous. I mean, you know, it could almost be called an arcade, but I have to use my own rule that if you have a, a legitimate arcade has to have at the very least 15 uh, 15 game machines in order to be an actual arcade. Anything less, it's a game room. <laughs> Using my own criteria. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the last time I went to the news corner, oh goodness, I want to say, the last time that I went to the news corner when it existed was probably 1993. Uh, before I... Uh, moved to just before I moved to Florida, January 1993. Um, when I went back in back to Bridgeport in 2000 to visit my family, you know, um, during the day I had some time to myself, so I drove down to the news corner just to see what was going on, and it was gone. I was so upset. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those things where it's like just a piece of my childhood, a piece of my history is gone. It was basically a uh, consignment shop. Oop. That's work calling. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. This is the perils of doing recordings while at work. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, like I said, I went, th you know, I went back in 2000 and it was gone. Um, when I went back to Bridgeport again in 2004, um, to, you know, to basically, to bury my mother, you know, to, you know, attend the funeral, um, and then when I went back again in 2005, it's just not amazing, but, you know, progress is what it is, but downtown Bridgeport had changed a whole lot, you know, in the space of those 12 years from 1993 when I was still there to 2005 when I went back. Um, and the new, of course the news corner was still gone. <laughs> I don't think it's ever coming back. That's unfortunate. Well, especially in this day and age when uh, you can basically find out anything you want to find out by doing a Google search and, you know, being able to sift through uh, websites and information to find what you're looking for. Um, and it just was, it just made me sad. It really did. 
Um, of course, just having the experience of having such a place in such a place, like I said, that location was prime real estate for the news corner for a very long time. But I think with the rise and advent of the internet in the late 90s going into the 2000s, yeah, I think the writing was on the wall for such a place. Not to mention it was in downtown Bridgeport, which was had their issues with crime and so forth. Um, but yeah, I can kind of understand it. But it was still a sad day when I saw that it was closed. Just like it was a sad day in 2005 when I found out uh, later, you know, when I found out uh, in 2005 that the new that uh, Milford Rec was was shut down and they had demolished the property. That was that was another sad day. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like that when you find if you're a video game head and you find good places to play video games and you come to more or less rely upon those places for that experience and then you go to their the location and then all of a sudden it's gone <laughs> it's just not it's just not a good feeling it really isn't but unfortunately that's the way it goes with arcades especially in those days before the free play uh, ad, you know, the advent of the free play option where you just pay a certain amount of money and you can play the games as long as you want. So, you know, that's the new formula. That's the new business model for the modern day video game arcade. And that's just, that's just what it is. Um, there are very few arcades that still run on quarters. There are some, I mean, Pinball Pete's in downtown Ann Arbor is, you know, the example I use, even though, like I've said, they're, they're expensive to, it's, a, it's an expensive prospect to, you know, go to Pinball Pete's and, and make an afternoon of it. But at the same time, I also, it also comes down to real estate. That is downtown Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it's just rent the rent for storefronts in that area is absolutely horrible but anyway i'm starting to ramble all right so that's my thoughts and feelings on the news corner um again if you grew up in bridgeport connecticut and you remember the news corner as a kid you remember you know a lot of things you know, remember things about it and the games and so forth uh, by all means, don't be shy. Get a hold of me. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com So that will do for this uh, On the Road segment. This is Brian saying good gaming, have fun out there, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com you can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.